Hi, everybody. This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the Ambasa Podcast. Today, I'll be handing over the microphone for this episode on epistaxis. A while back, two medical students from the University of Colorado named Dylan Norton and David Murphy contacted me about recording this episode, and they did a really awesome job. This episode will review the basics of epistaxis, and it will go over everything you need to know about this chief complaint. That's all I have to say except for that this podcast is represent the views of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, and the Shawshank EM Residency Program. With that said, here's Dylan Norton and David Murphy on epistaxis. Hello, EM Basic listeners. My name is David Murphy, and I'm joined today by my classmate, Dylan Norton. We're fourth-year medical students at the University of Colorado in Denver, and we're going to tackle the topic of epistaxis today. We would like to thank Dr. Carroll for giving us this opportunity to produce this episode of EM Basic, along with Dr. Michael Breyer of Denver Health Emergency Medicine, for his help in reviewing the content for this episode. First off, a quick disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not reflect those of our institutions. Thanks for the intro, David. Why don't we start with a case? Then we can discuss how to assess and manage these patients, potential pitfalls, and current controversies. Sounds good. Go ahead and lead us off. Okay, you're working a late night shift in the ED and are called to see a 66-year-old man with a history of atrial fibrillation who presents with a nosebleed that just won't stop. It started about two hours ago, and he thinks he's lost about a cup of blood so far. He's been able to control the bleeding with pressure, but every time he releases the pressure, the bleeding starts again. He says nothing like this has ever happened before, and the bleeding just started out of the blue. He denies any trauma and definitely was not picking his nose. He's in no acute distress, but looks anxious and tired. He's afebrile with a pulse of 75 and normal respiratory rate. His blood pressure is 165 over 98. What do you do now? Well, from your description, it sounds like this gentleman isn't an extremist, but evaluating vital signs and assessing the ABCs should always be our first concern. This patient's vitals are notable only for an elevated blood pressure of 165 over 98. He's able to talk and appears to be mentating normally. Given this patient has a history of atrial fibrillation, I'd like to get a quick medication history as there's a good chance he's on an anticoagulant. If so, I'd order coag studies right away on this gentleman. That all sounds pretty reasonable. So, is this a typical epistaxis patient? Well, in terms of epidemiology, yes. Epistaxis has a bimodal age distribution where the vast majority of patients are either children, ages 2 to 10, or the elderly, ages 50 to 80. Anticoagulation is certainly also a risk factor. Despite his insistence, digital trauma, or nose picking, is the most common inciting factor, but obviously this is rarely something patients will admit to. Yeah, no doubt. Not something people really want to brag about. That said, there are a lot of other possible causes for nosebleeds, so we can't chalk them all up to digital trauma. What about his high blood pressure? Isn't there an association with hypertension? Well, yes, the hypertensive association is actually a controversial topic that we'll discuss a bit more towards the end of the show. For now, let's focus on evaluating the patient for risk factors, as these may lessen the trauma threshold to set off a bleed. Right. The patient in our case may be taking warfarin or some other anticoagulant. I suppose that is a major risk factor. What are some others? There is a long list for sure. Some things you want to think about include mechanical factors such as foreign bodies or nasogastric tube insertion, or factors associated with exposure to nasal cannula oxygen, cold or dry climate, cocaine, topical antihistamines, or solvent inhalation. Nasal or sinus infections are also a risk factor. Then there are your comorbid conditions such as coagulopathies, 
vascular abnormalities such as Osler-Weber-Rendu, a.k.a. hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, arterial venous malformations, and endometriosis. Recurrent unilateral bleeds are concerning for neoplasm. I'm looking forward to making that diagnosis of hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia in my nosebleed patient. I suppose I could be waiting a long time for that. <laughs> yes, you may be. Although it's actually the most common presenting complaint in that relatively rare condition. I imagine you're unlikely to see many cases of endometriosis-induced epistaxis, however. Right. Okay, before we get too far off track here, maybe we should step back. So just how common is epistaxis? Well, as you can imagine, epistaxis is actually very common. A 2009 New England Journal Review article quoted a lifetime incidence of 60%, though only an estimated 6% of these patients actually seek medical treatment. But in a country of 300 million people, that means a startling 450,000 emergency department visits for epistaxis annually, or 1 in 200 visits. Further, approximately 6% of these require hospitalization. Wow, that's a lot of nosebleeds. For sure, we're currently amidst an epidemic of rampant occult nosepicking. Nice. Okay, sounds like it's time for some anatomy. So where is all this blood coming from? Well, one of the main things we need to determine when you have an epistaxis patient right off the bat is whether the bleeding is anterior or posterior. Anterior nosebleeds emanate from Kisselbach's plexus, a.k.a. Little's area, which is an anastomotic network of vessels in the anterior portion of the nose near the septum. Posterior bleeds usually arise from the posterior portion of the sphenopalatine artery, the SPA, and sometimes the carotid artery itself. As posterior bleeds have more robust blood supply, they tend to be much larger in volume. Fortunately, posterior bleeds account for just 10% of cases. Are there other clues as to the anatomic origin of bleed on exam? A couple of distinguishing points that may suggest a posterior bleed would be blood flowing from both nares and visualized in the oropharynx on exam. Both of these relate to the anatomic origin of the bleeding, as more proximal sources allow for retrograde flow to the contralateral nares or into the oropharynx versus distal anterior bleeds. Now, as I mentioned, the great majority of patients will have anterior bleeds, but you want to watch for posterior bleeds as these can be life-threatening. Why don't we talk about managing anterior bleeds first, then we can discuss how to deal with cases of posterior bleeding. You want to get us started? Sure. Generally, managing epistaxis is practiced in a stepwise approach. The first step is obviously going to be to stop the bleeding. The patient we were discussing was able to staunch the bleeding with pressure to the anterior nose, but it starts up again every time he lets up. As with most external bleeding, direct pressure is going to be the first step. We can have the patient hold firm pressure on the nasal ala for 10 to 15 minutes by pushing tightly against the septum. In most anterior bleeds, this is going to work, but the bleeding often will start back up again. Interestingly, some patients are able to apply pressure so effectively that they can actually cause blood to come out of their tear ducts, so be aware that this is a possibility. Before you attempt to control the bleeding definitively with pressure, it can be helpful to have the patient blow their nose and quickly apply a hemostatic spray, such as oxymetazoline, which is afrin, to the nares before applying pressure. Does head position really matter? Actually, from my reading on this, the head position doesn't matter much, but you want to try to make the patient comfortable. You don't want the patient to swallow a lot of blood, as this can make them nauseous. Some experts suggest the patient bend forward at the waist to keep them swallowing blood. Okay, so let's suppose our patient's still bleeding. While we have already touched on some of the important parts of the history specific to epistaxis, was there anything that we missed? 
As mentioned, always start with the ABCs first, and be prepared for advanced airway management if that becomes necessary. History should cover past medical history, family history, social history, being sure to ask about cocaine use, and any medications the patient is on. Knowing if the patient is on anticoagulation or is at risk of a bleeding diathesis is key, and nasal sprays such as antihistamines or steroids can also put patients at risk for bleeding. Patients aren't great at estimating blood loss, but we should ask how much they think they've lost, and we want to know if the bleeding is unilateral or bilateral. What about labs? I can imagine a few scenarios where a few laboratory tests could greatly alter my management. For example, correcting a coagulopathy from a supertherapeutic INR. Yeah, that's right. While routine labs are not necessary in patients without massive volume loss, a few labs may be indicated based on the individual patient and clinical scenario. Examples include definitely checking an INR if the patient's on warfarin and considering a CBC for anemia or thrombocytopenia, a CMP for renal or liver failure, those kind of things. Okay, so let's go ahead and move on to the exam. What are we looking for? First of all, before getting started, I suggest taking some precautions before the exam, like gowning up. We're going to have to get a close look at the nose and have the patient blow out any clots, so this can get messy very quickly. So we gown up in full personal protective isolation gear, ensuring good eye protection, and have the patient blow out their nose. Try using suction as an adjunct to clearing the clots. Then, take a look and try to find a bleeding vessel. Is that the basic idea? Right. Get in there and take a look. You want to have a good light source for this. A headlamp can be handy if you have one of those around. Most EDs will have a nasal speculum available, and that's highly recommended. Many EDs actually have an entire epistaxis kit with most of the key tools. Now, positioning the patient for examination is very important. Sit the patient upright and have them lean forward slightly with the neck flexed and head extended, i.e. the sniffing position. This will facilitate the best examination of the nasal cavity. Applying a topical anesthetic at this point to make the patient more comfortable will also aid in your exam. Man, I can already see the patient squirming around. I've actually seen some docs who like to have the patient sit against the wall and utilize either the wall or an assistant to minimize head mobility and prevent the patient from moving all over the place. Yeah, those are good thoughts. Once you have a good look in there, you're trying to identify the culprit vessel. At this point, you should have a pretty good idea of what type of epistaxis you're working with. So in terms of management, I've heard all different approaches to stopping the bleeding. That's right. Epistaxis care seems to be highly variable in regards to provider preferences. I think it's important to acknowledge that there are many ways to skin a cat and that while we're presenting a stepwise approach to managing epistaxis, this is just one approach. In addition, as management is different for anterior and posterior bleeds, we'll tackle those entities separately. Great. So let's say that after examining the patient, you are fairly confident that this is an anterior bleed. Where do you go from here? For anterior bleeds, as we mentioned, the initial evaluation is going to include staunching the bleeding with pressure and initial application of oxymetazoline. If the bleeding has stopped with these simple interventions, then we may simply be able to observe the patient for some time, maybe 30 to 60 minutes, and discharge them with a topical antibiotic ointment that they can apply a few times a day for three or so days. Well, if the bleeding continues, what's next? If our initial efforts were unsuccessful in stopping the bleeding, the next step is generally going to be to insert some gauze or a cotton pledget soaked with a vasoconstrictor into the nostril with a source bleeder. There are various options for a vasoconstrictor here. Let solution, which is a combination of lidocaine, epinephrine, and tetracaine, can provide both analgesia and vasoconstriction. 
4% cocaine is also a possibility, but that may not be available in your ED. Cocaine? Awesome. So you tell the patient, Sir, I recommend we put some cocaine in your nose to help stop the bleeding. And I can imagine your ED becoming very popular. Seriously though, how long should the pledget stay in? The pledget should stay in for 4-5 to five minutes to allow for adequate effect. Some like to clamp the nostril to limit bleeding and increase the contact with mucosa. Okay, so the bleeding seems to have stopped, but when you remove the gauze, the patient starts to re-bleed a little. Sure, this would be a great time to repeat the packing. Often this is sufficient to obtain hemostasis, thereby avoiding the uncomfortable anterior pack. So let's say the bleeding seems to have stopped. Is that it? Is it time for discharge? Well, not quite. Having attained hemostasis, now is the opportunity to cauterize the lesions with silver nitrate sticks. You know, your point about hemostasis is crucial. Attempts to cauterize active bleeding will fail. So the technique here is to dab for four to five seconds until you see gray residue or eschar. There are a few important points of caution regarding cauterization. First, do not cauterize bilaterally because you do risk perforating the septum. Second, if you are unsuccessful after two attempts at cautery, it's time to stop and try another modality. These are great points, and word to the wise, beware of the sneeze. Silver nitrate often makes patients sneeze, and I can attest to this personally, thus reinforcing the importance of having good PPI, as the last thing you want is a bloody sneeze. Yikes. Personal experience, huh? Now, what did you say earlier about the nose-picking epidemic? Let's just say I have a long commute to the hospital. Seriously, though, regarding cautery technique, I would add that good suctioning to create as dry of a surface as possible will yield better success when cauterizing. Also, I want to note that you may hear about the use of electrocautery, but this is not really a procedure that we perform in the emergency department, rather a technique utilized by otolaryngologists. Okay, so despite your attempts, the patient starts to bleed heavily again. Where do we go from here? The next and final step is nasal packing. There are several types of packing, from rhino rockets or the rapid rhino, to rolled gauze, and over a dozen others that include anterior-posterior combination packs. Rhino rocket and rapid rhino are brand names for two of the popular nasal tampons, though there are many. Of course, we're not being paid to endorse any particular device. Although each setup is slightly different, placement is about the same. The nasal passage is a vault that runs parallel to the jawline, not the nasal dorsum. Thus, when placing packing, insert into, not up, the nair. Coating the tampon with bacitracin ointment may aid with insertion and provide some antimicrobial activity. Some of these tampons are made to expand to fill the nasal passage when exposed to fluid, such as sterile saline, or in some cases, vasoconstrictor infused saline can be used. Others have an internal balloon that is inflated after insertion. Occasionally, it may be necessary to pack the contralateral nair to provide contralateral pressure against the packing. Okay, so you cram the packing into the nose and just leave it there? What about infection? Don't you need to prescribe antibiotics? Yeah, systemic antibiosis is another area that we will address in the final segment of this podcast, as it's a controversial issue. Systemic antibiotics are usually given to prevent complications such as toxic shock syndrome, sinusitis, and otitis media, though these risks may be more theoretical than practical. Most sources agree that topical antibiotic ointment applied to the tampon itself is a good idea, however. In general, packing should be left in place for 24 to 72 hours, at which point patients should follow up in the ED or with an ENT surgeon for removal. They will need to come back immediately if the bleeding recurs, of course. 
If your patient continues to bleed, you should be strongly considering that the bleeding is either emanating from the contralateral septum or coming from a posterior bleed. While most patients are successfully treated in the emergency department, approximately 10% of anterior bleeds will require ENT consultation. You should consider involving ENT in refractory cases. Okay, so this wraps up our section on anterior bleeds. Do you have anything else to add before we move on to posterior bleeds? Well, one final point. I think it's important to note that the interventions we've discussed are not benign therapies. Our efforts to curb bleeding must be balanced against treatment complications. The most concerning are toxic shock syndrome, septal necrosis, rebleeding, ethmoid fracture, sinusitis, and packing dislodgement leading to asphyxiation. Okay, let's move on to the infamous posterior bleed. The first and arguably most important step is to identify that, that you are dealing with a posterior bleed. History and exam may suggest this, as posterior bleeds tend to occur in different patient populations, particularly the elderly. There is often a swift rate and high volume of bleeding, and there may be pooling of blood in the oropharynx. Further, external direct pressure will not staunch the bleeding. Yes, these are the patients that I would want to stay in front of. Specifically, placing IVs, typing and crossing the patient, getting a coag panel and INR are all appropriate. Also, calling for help early is a great idea. Right on. These patients need their bleeding addressed quickly. A double balloon catheter is most commonly used, though there are some nasal packing devices designed to handle posterior bleeds as well. If none of these are available, a 10 to 14 French Foley with a 30 milliliter balloon will work in a pinch. You will want to prepare the patient by providing topical anesthesia and even consider procedural sedation as this can be uncomfortable. Gather your supplies and position the patient properly. You will then advance the balloon catheter along the floor of the nasal cavity until the retention ring lodges against the entrance to the nair. Then you want to inflate the posterior balloon with 10 milliliters of sterile saline. Retract the catheter until it lodges firmly against the posterior coena. When the posterior balloon is seated, inflate the anterior balloon with 30 milliliters of sterile saline. The amount of saline added may have to be adjusted for patient comfort. One important pearl here. Do not use petroleum-based lubricant with balloon catheters, as these substances may degrade the catheter rubber. Well, sounds like balloons are the best tool we've got in the ED, and starting them as soon as possible seems like a fantastic idea. Aren't there risks with posterior balloons, though? Yes, indeed. Despite posterior packing being uncomfortable and or painful, you need to be aware of rare complications including infection, dysphagia, eustachian tube dysfunction, tissue necrosis, and dislodgement with subsequent aspiration and or asphyxia. In addition, you may hear anecdotes about hypoxia, bradyarrhythmias, myocardial infarction, and death. But it's unclear if packing alone is responsible. In particular, placement of posterior balloons theoretically can provoke a profound vasovagal response, also called the nasopulmonary reflex, but studies have not substantiated this effect. Hmm, interesting. So I guess the takeaway here then is that you should be ready to resuscitate your patient, especially those with significant underlying cardiopulmonary disease, and escalate to ICU level care as appropriate. One final point to add, we want to avoid bilateral posterior ballooning if at all possible, as you do increase the risk of septal necrosis. Right on. These posterior bleed patients are automatically admitted and need ENT consult. Additional interventions by either ENT or IR may be required for arterial embolization or artery ligation. Okay, David, I think we've covered the basics. 
During our talk, a couple controversial topics came up. Why don't we spend a minute reviewing those and touching on future directions in epistaxis treatment? Sure. We mentioned prescribing prophylactic antibiotics when using nasal packing. This is still considered standard of care among many providers, but there is little evidence that antibiotics are really needed, and some believe that the side effects of antibiotics outweigh the likely benefits in this case. An argument can be made that we are practicing poor antibiotic stewardship by giving antibiotics every time we apply packing, especially in the case of anterior bleeds. Right. While we don't have time to dive into this debate too deeply, the theoretical risk is that the packing can lead to a staphylococcal toxic shock syndrome, sinusitis, or acute otitis media, but there are actually no reports in the literature of toxic shock ever occurring in an ED patient treated with anterior packing. The risk may be more theoretical than actual. Still, most providers continue to prescribe a short course of amoxicillin clavulonate, a second-generation cephalosporin, or TMP sulfa or Bactrim for these patients. There was a nice review of this on the Washington University Journal Club podcast recently. We'll reference that in the show notes for anyone who wants to listen further. This is an area where practice may evolve over the next several years. There's also been a lot of talk about topical tranexamic acid for these patients. What's the deal with that? Yeah, tranexamic acid has gotten a lot of press recently for use in trauma patients and does have hemostatic properties. It's actually been used with good success for a while by ENTs in patients with hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia. There was a 2013 American Journal of Emergency Medicine study showing utility in ED patients with anterior bleeds. However, this study was too small to give us a definitive answer as to its safety and efficacy for ED use. Again, there's a great review of this topic in the foam world, this time done by the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. We'll also provide a link to that episode for people who want to dive deep into that topic. So David, before we wrap up, we should probably touch on one other controversy. What do I say when the patient tells me that they only get nosebleeds when their blood pressure is high? Is there any truth that hypertension causes epistaxis? Hypertension does not cause epistaxis, but some experts believe it may prolong bleeding. There appears to be no link between the frequency and severity of epistaxis and the degree of hypertension. Many of our patients are hypertensive in the emergency department. This may be their baseline or could be due to white coat hypertension, anxiety, or pain provoking a stress response. At this time, there is no evidence that lowering blood pressure should be part of our treatment algorithm. Epistaxis conceivably could be a manifestation of a hypertensive crisis. But if this is on your differential, it would be important to evaluate it as a separate entity. Well, I think it's time to bring it home. Should we do a quick summary? Sounds good. Give me the quick and dirty about assessment and treatment. Okay, one, get a good history including onset, quantity of blood loss, frequency, past medical history, medications, etc. Make sure you've distinguished anterior from posterior and know what you're dealing with. Get labs, if appropriate, depending on your patient and the history. Two. For anterior bleeds, you need to stop the bleeding with direct pressure and perhaps a quick spray of oxymetazoline. If this fails to stop the bleeding, you can apply vasoconstrictor-soaked pledgets for 5 to 10 minutes, re-examine, and cauterize if necessary. If all of this has failed, then you can proceed to nasal packing. Patients with anterior packing may need antibiotics and should follow up in the emergency department or with ENT in 24 to 72 hours. 3. For posterior bleeds, you will need a specially designed double balloon catheter, or Foley if that's not available, to tamponade the bleeding. These patients tend to be much sicker, most will need to be admitted, and many to the ICU. 
so you will need to have your specialists on board. Finally, regarding controversial topics, it appears unlikely that hypertension causes epistaxis, and there is probably little benefit of giving antibiotics and nasal packing. Although tranexamic acid may be a good alternative to traditional vasoconstrictors, we need more evidence before changing our current practice. This is bread and butter EM, and it's something we should all be good at. As with everything in emergency medicine, however, our knowledge is changing constantly, which is what makes this such a fun specialty to be a part of. I totally agree. Any final thoughts, Dylan? Just that we thank the listeners for their attention to our discussion on epistaxis. We hope this has been a helpful review. We would love to hear your comments on our show, so leave your thoughts on the EM Basic webpage. And be sure to download the show notes from the EM Basic website. Thanks again to Dr. Michael Breyer at Denver Health and Steve Carroll at EM Basic for collaborating with us on this project. So long, EM Basic listeners. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to come back on and talk about our bandwidth sponsor, EB Medicine. Coming in March 2015, EB Medicine will offer a book dedicated solely to trauma topics. This is new material written by experts in the field that will arm you with what you need to know about how to manage a variety of trauma situations, including pediatric trauma, airway, and resuscitation. This will be available to EM Basic listeners at a discounted price, and we'll have more information on this product soon. In the meantime, don't forget to access your EB Medicine benefits and discounts at ebmedicine.net slash embasic. That's all for now. Have a good one.